Oh, good morning again. Uh, Matthew 20, we're going to finish off, uh, go from 17 up to, up to the end. So let's, uh, let's just start with a word of prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we come to you as we seek again to understand the spirit of your Son, as we seek again to, to walk with him there and in his journey around Palestine, and we pray, Heavenly Father, that really your word might become flesh to us, that although we know these words, we might find a second naivety, that we might find somehow that we can come to him for the first time, and that our spiritual journey forwards then will be propelled with, with him with us. Help us, Heavenly Father, for his sake. Amen. Okay, well, we washed up last, uh, last time, uh, the beginning of Matthew 20 there, with the parable of the, of the laborers, and that finishes up, of course, with the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And the incident that now, that the incidents that we, we've now got to pick up with from 17 are not, I think, unrelated to that. They're going up to Jerusalem, and the Lord takes the twelve apart uh, on, on their own, that means, uh, on the way up there. And this is a great theme, the way to Jerusalem. This is now the last journey, the final approach to, to the crucifixion. And he clearly wants them to understand that they are not simply walking with him on a, a path that leads, uh, on a road that leads to Jerusalem, but he wants them to understand that they are actually walking with him on the way, which is the way of, of the cross. And that this is not just any other journey to Jerusalem, this is specifically a journey unto death. And then he, he predicts in great detail, uh, 18 and 19, that the Son of Man will be betrayed, and, and that's not a good translation, it really means to be handed over, will be handed over to the chief priests and to the scribes, they shall condemn him to death, but of course they couldn't, the Jews couldn't kill people. Uh, they had to, therefore, verse 19, deliver him to the Gentiles, they had to ask the Romans to do it, to mock, scourge, crucify, and the third day he shall rise again. Now, this is pretty detailed, is it not? And of course the question arises as to whether the Lord actually uh, had some flash of revelation from God whereby God actually sort of told him that this is all going to happen, and so he, he says, well, this is what's going to happen, or whether, in fact, he had figured all this out from the Old Testament, because it was perfectly possible, I suggest, to actually figure out all those things that he's just said from the Old Testament, that this was necessary for, for the Messiah. Well, I'll leave you to chew on that one, and maybe we'll pick that up in the discussion uh, afterwards. My point really, though, is that all that he said is a very detailed uh, description, of, uh, a sort of description ahead of time of what he's going to go through and what he's going to do for them. And then, verse 20, you have this sort of anticlimax when the mother of Zebedee's children, this is the mother of James and John, this is Salome, uh, comes to him and says, Grant that these my two sons may sit, one on your right hand, one on the left, in your kingdom. Because really, all that's in us kind of cries out against her. That Look, don't you get it that he's just said that he's going to die for you in this terrible way, and you come wanting special favors in his kingdom? Do you not get what he's just said? And this is really, however, all of us. Because 
almost every time, and in fact every time, when the Lord predicts something about his death, about the, the crucifixion, straight away afterwards we encounter in the record the unspiritual response of people, uh, particularly of the disciples. They argue about who's going to be the greatest. Or here, they start an argument, who's going to sit on the right or on the left? That they start getting caught up with petty argument amongst themselves. In every uh, case of the predictions of the Lord's upcoming death, this, unfortunately, is the response of the disciples. Not once do they say, oh, wow, we're going to stand with you to the end, Lord, or, or something like that. They never do. They don't make the expected response. And that, I think, is similar with us, because I notice in myself a distinct dislike of reading uh, scripture that talks about the crucifixion. We read through the account of the crucifixion, we think, yes, I know this, and we sort of uh, skate over it. Um, We find our mind wanders at the breaking of bread, that somehow we, we say we can't focus upon him there. But what do we find ourselves focusing on? Well, all kind of garbage. You know, the, the colour of, uh, of the carpet, of the chair in front of us, or the jacket the fellow's wearing at the front, or you know, all sorts of absolute irrelevances. And why is it then that we have a problem, and that they had a problem in the first century, in focusing upon the, the death of the Lord? I think, the, uh, I think that there's a, a psychological and subconscious reason for every time when we kind of uh, don't quite get something from the Bible. I believe that is the case about the Trinity, that uh, that is so popular because to actually believe that the Lord Jesus was human and yet he never sinned it shows, I think, therefore, the possibility which there is within human nature and the possibility which there is for each of us. And we'd rather that not be the case, and so people stick Jesus up as, as God himself, like he's out of my reach. I'm not God. I can't do what he did. And so I think it is with our discomfort with the, the record of the crucifixion that if he did this, then I must do that. You see it clearest in Matthew 16 when the Lord uh, is taken by Peter and Peter says, this shall not be unto you. And the Lord's answer to him is, get behind me, Satan. You are just being an adversary to me dying on the cross and pick up the cross yourself which reading uh, or reasoning back would imply to me that Peter didn't want Jesus to die in that way because he knew that it was a demand for him to die, because all that is true of the Lord is true of us. So I think we have to, to be aware of that and to realise that there is therefore going to be this inbuilt barrier within us to the, the, the Lord's teaching about the cross. So then the mother of Zebedee's children comes to him and says, well, can't my son sit on the right hand and on the left hand in your kingdom? And in Mark, we, we learn that it was James and John themselves who also said this. So they were trying to use their mum to manipulate the Lord. Now, quite recently in the Lord's teaching, he has spoken of how the disciples are going to sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And yet, despite that, and despite saying that he's going to die on the cross for them, they, that these two want something special. They want something even more than all those wonderful promises. So this really is a pretty poor show here, both by James and John and by their mother. 
Now, incidentally, if you chase through, and you can see these references in my notes, uh, John 19, verse 25, Mark 15, verse 40, and Matthew 27, 56, and you, you can see these in, in, in the notes, you'll see that Mary, uh, sorry, that uh, the mother of Zebedee's children, or Salome, is described in the account of the women standing at the cross as the mother of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Sorry, the, the, the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, that would mean that James and John were actually the first cousins of Jesus, and the mother of Zebedee's children, their mother, was actually his mother's mother. So then, what I think you, you learn from that is that uh, she sort of was into some kind of nepotism, that she, she wanted her, uh, her sons to have this... Uh, honored place because they were, after all, the closest relatives of Jesus. And that's in a nepotistic uh, society, that's how things were. So, really, this is a pretty poor comment uh, by them, uh, comment upon their spirituality. And then he says, verse 21, what do you want? Now, that phrase, what do you want? Uh, is repeated at the end of this chapter in verse 32 when Jesus calls the two blind men and says to them, what do you want? Well, it's pretty obvious what they wanted. They obviously wanted to be given their sight. So this was, if you like, a rhetorical question. What do you want? And uh, actually, it's not the only time at this time that he uses it because uh, this incident with the blind men where he says to them at the end of this chapter, what do you want me to do for you? Uh, is as he leaves Jericho. But according to Luke 18.41, there was another incident of curing a blind man as he approached Jericho. And again he says the same. What do you want me to do for you? Now, clearly enough, this use of what do you want is, uh, as I say, rhetorical. So, what the Lord is saying is, or what he's trying to elicit from them, is a recognition from them of what is your dominant desire. What do you really want? And yet he's saying it in the context of having said, I'm going to die for you. It's as if he's trying to get us to see that in the light of his death for me, all my dominant desires as a person in this world are nothing. Absolutely nothing. So many people get turned off God and turned off Jesus because they complain that, well, I had real hard times and I prayed to God and, it, well, the answer didn't come through. I didn't get what I was looking for. I prayed to God and he didn't, he didn't answer my prayer. I didn't, in the sense, I didn't get what I wanted. That, that's pathetic. Absolutely pathetic because what do you want more? If he is dying for you, and, oh, that's not, that's not enough. Well, what are you, spoiled kid or something? Mixed up kid? If he's dying for you and you turn away, and you turn away from the Son of God on the cross because he didn't give you, what, a few more years in this world? Because he didn't give you what you want in this life? Oh my goodness, I mean, it's absolutely pathetic. I, I mean, I'm the same. I'm not saying I'm any better than you. I'm, I'm making the point that this is pathetic. And 
this is the beauty of this, this section here uh, in the Gospels, where, as I say, at least three times with the man approaching uh, Jericho, the blind men leaving Jericho, and now with this, uh, with this incident, with, uh, Zebedee's, uh, with the mother of Zebedee's children, who would appear to be Jesus' auntie, coming and saying, oh, well, let's have some special favours, Jesus. Look, what do you want me to do for you? And as I say, I do believe that that must be surely taken uh, rhetorically. Because it's kind of obvious. Oh, I'm going to die for you? And then you, <clears throat> you come to me with more favours? Uh, yes? What can I do for you? Yeah. So then, <clears throat> the Lord uh, works, I think, in the same way today that he, he seeks to get us to... Um, realize what are our dominant desires. What can I do for you? What do you really want? Um, what will you, uh, literally there? Um, <clears throat> and it's the same, as I say, with, with the blind men. Well, of course they wanted to have their sight back. Uh, but his point is, what do you really want? And he's reframing and repositioning that, that real want, uh, right in the, the context of his death for them. Now, he often does this. Do you remember when he's on the way to Emmaus, and they're so enthralled with this conversation that he makes as if he would go further. And then they say, ah, oh, please don't go further. Please, 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 please come and stay in our house. Well, he does that, I think, too. Now, not to play hard to get, but to pique their desire. Please, Jesus, please stay. <clears throat> and it's exactly the same with um, uh, when he's in the boat, in Mark 6, when apparently he is asleep. And they say, Jesus, please, 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 please get up. Well, whether he was really asleep or was just playing asleep, uh, I, I don't know, but it was pretty obvious that he was acting like that in order to intensify their need for him. Or in another storm, remember he comes to them walking on the water and makes as if he's going to walk past them. They're like, hey, Jesus, we're here. Please don't walk past us. Why? All the time. It's to bring us to that point where our desperation for him is, is strongest. It's to... Uh, reveal to us, or to, to change within us, our dominant desire. So, anyway, she, she says, when he's prodding her to realize what is her dominant desire, she says, oh, grant, give, <clears throat> verse 21, that my sons may sit. Now, the, the Greek word that's translated grant or give, it's literally say, uh, tell, and he, in verse 22, he answers and says, and says there, it is the same word as, as grant, translated uh, grant in, in 21. So his answer uh, to her, you know, give, uh, is basically to say, look, uh, die with me. I've told you I'm going to die. <clears throat> You've got all your questions and your desires that you want favors out of me. Die with me. That's the answer. Drink my cup. Now, 
it does seem to me that they are also alluding here to what he's just said in chapter 18, verse 19, about how if two or three of you shall agree together as touching whatever they shall ask, it shall be given to them. Whereas two, James and John, and three, their mother, who want this. And uh, as I've said, I, I think they also have their their eye on the whole uh, thing about the the, the promise of, of thrones uh, earlier. So I, I think they're manipulating, or they're trying to manipulate the Lord Jesus. And the fact that, that these boys get their mum, they use the female, uh, his auntie, if I'm reading right, uh, to, to come and, and ask this favour, and then they come and back it up by asking for it themselves, etc., this is primitive manipulation. This is trying to take the words of Jesus about if two or three of you agree for anything, it's going to be done for you, uh, and, and sort of putting quite wrong pressure on him, uh, trying to, to manipulate his words around, say, look, come on, you said this. And that's a sort of garbage that goes on in the Pentecostal movement. It's a garbage that goes on in the evangelical movement. All this ripping of words out of context and holding God to, to account uh, as it were, this is absolutely wrong. This is terribly wrong. This is an absolute abuse of the the willingness of the Lord Jesus to to die for us. And because all of this is framed, as I say, within that absolute context. Now he's very gracious to them. He's very gracious to them. They have the the whole focus all wrong because it, in Mark's record it, they ask. Uh, we, we would like you that you should do for us whatever we desire. And as I say, I think they're uh, playing around with his words in chapter 18, verse 19, that if two or three of you shall agree together as touching whatever you would ask, it will be given to them. And so they're saying, well, we two or three would like you to do for us whatever we shall ask. Now, to do for us... They want to be in the kingdom and great in the kingdom for me, for us. And Jesus basically says, as an answer, go away and die with me. Drink my cup. Be baptized with my baptism. Now, <clears throat> I think uh, we can want to be in God's kingdom for all the wrong reasons. Because I fear death. Because I don't like the life that I'm now living because I want this. What's in it for me is that I shall not die anymore. I shall not get sick anymore. I shall not have, uh, you know, whatever, financial problems or whatever problems they are uh, anymore. And I think the Lord is turning that back on them. It's not all about you. It's about being with me. And wherever I am, there shall my servant be. If you die with me, if you're that devoted to me, well, as it happens, I also resurrected, so you shall rise with me. And he goes on to say, look here, I came uh, not to, with any eye on personal benefit, not to be ministered unto, but just to give my life as a ransom for many. That's why I'm here. Uh, not because I'm looking at the reward. Not because my eye is on that reward, but I came to serve, and I came to minister now, that, that is the question, is it not? If, and this is a hypothetical, I know, but if then there was to be no reward, if actually 
there was a special message from God that said, oh, by the way, the whole thing about the kingdom, the future kingdom is off now, guys. It's all true. All the rest of it is true about Jesus being perfect, loving you, dying for you, rising again for you, blah, blah. But just the, the little bit about you guys living forever in the kingdom, that bit's been changed. Where would you stand? Where would you stand? That's a, a question worth entering into. Because if we really love Jesus, and if we really have that relationship with him, wherever he is and however he was, that's how I want to be. And if for some weird reason the future bit uh, is cut off, well, all right, fair enough. But no, I'm not going to go out and start drinking and go out there and start stealing and start having a hedonistic lifestyle. No, no, no. Because I love him. And I, I, I want to stay with him. Like at the end of Habakkuk, where Habakkuk basically says, even if all the promised blessings um, don't come true, <clears throat> if the vines don't, uh, don't blossom and there's no fruit on the fig tree and so forth, anyway, I will rejoice in the Lord. He's saying that even if all the promises of benefit to me and blessing to me don't come true, all right, I'm still with the Lord. I just love him and I'm going to carry on praising him. Same with Job, even if he slays me, yet will I trust in him. So the Lord gently says, and I think he is gentle, because, I mean, they're way off here in their, in their spirituality. He says, verse 22, you know not what you're asking for. Are you able to, uh, to, to do this? <clears throat> um, and he talks about his cup and his, his baptism. Incidentally, I think that Paul has that verse 22 in mind in Romans 8, 26, where he says, we know not what we should pray for as we ought. Um, <clears throat> and I, you don't know what you're asking for. I think he has that in mind. And I think the sense is then, not that you don't know the actual subjects of prayer, but rather that you don't really appreciate uh, what's going on in prayer, <clears throat> in prayer, but not to worry, you have Jesus who is reading your, your basic inner thought, your dominant desire, and putting that over to, to the Father. Don't worry too much about verbalizing it. So then he talks about his cup, and he asks us to be baptized with, uh, with his baptism. He's obviously referring to his death on the cross, which, as I've said in 18 and 19, is the immediate context. And he talks in the future tense about the cup that I will drink of, and we think of him in Gethsemane struggling, as it were, to drink that cup and asking for it to pass by him. And yet he says, uh, in the present tense, and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. Yet in Luke 12.50, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with in the future, and how am I straightened until it be accomplished? So he sees then a baptism, his baptism, and his cup as, in a sense, ongoing. That's why you can find some Old Testament prophecies about the crucifixion. Isaiah 53 would be the classic example, which are quoted both during the lifetime of Jesus, during his ministry, and about his death. So quite clearly, his death in that sense was ongoing. That death on the cross at the end of it was in fact a living out of the essence of how he had been during his life. His life, in that sense, was a death. Now, we 
all too easily are baptized with his baptism and we drink his cup uh, Sunday by Sunday. And that's good. But this really is so relevant to us, isn't it? Are you able? Oh, sure, we're able. And we look at his predictions of his death there, and we see how totally blasé they were, and especially with the fact that he himself could not, or did not want to drink the, the cup. Uh, the, his whole struggle uh, about drinking the cup, take it away from me, please, I don't want to drink this. Um, and they, just unflinchingly and blasé, oh sure, we are able to do that. When he himself barely could, and they, of course, were long gone. They, they ran away or went to sleep uh, whilst he was going through all that. <clears throat> so we also, I think, uh, should just pause for thought. I, I know that breaking your bread means a lot of different things. <clears throat> and it, uh, it means different things for us at different times, I think. We, we focus on different aspects of its meaning uh, in different 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 weeks, different parts of our lives, and that's fair enough. But in one sense, and I emphasize only in one sense, in one sense, to take that cup should not be easy. It should not be easy. And it should not be done in a spirit of, I am able to do this. Ah, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, pass me that cup. Um, <clears throat> because he struggled to take that. He really did, as, as we know. And his baptism, well, his baptism, as I say, was in a sense, uh, I am baptized with, and in another sense, as we said, Luke 12:50, I must still be baptized uh, with that baptism, and how am I straightened till that be accomplished? So baptism also, it's a one-off thing, of course, and yet it has an ongoing sense. Remember, Paul says that Israel were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They went through the Red Sea, water both sides of them, cloud on top of them, which is like water. So they were surrounded by water. And yet, after they came through the Red Sea, then they got to walk through the wilderness, which is a picture of our life now, but they walked under the cloud, which is also water. So in one sense, their baptism happened as a one-time experience, and yet it was also an ongoing experience. And you get this idea, really, I, I think, uh, in the whole language in 2 Corinthians 4 about our dying and his new life breaking through into our mortal flesh. That Paul seems to be saying that is an ongoing process, that we die, his life comes into our lives, we die, his life comes into our life, and so on. So baptism, that death and resurrection with him, keeps on happening. Maybe even in Romans 6 there is that idea when he says in verse 4 in the present tense, we are buried with him by baptism. And yet he says earlier in Romans 6.3, we were baptized into his death. And we are being buried with him by baptism. So then I, I would suggest that there is that idea of an ongoing uh, element, shall we say, to, to baptism. By one spirit we are all baptized, present tense, into one body, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. You keep on uh, coming into it every time you encounter the, the people of the Lord. 
So then, this blasé, we are able, it's the same word, oddly enough, used in Matthew 26, 42, when he, the Lord asks whether the cup may, and it's the same word, to be able, whether it's able, whether it's possible for the cup to pass from him so he doesn't have to drink it. I, that's Matthew 26, 42. I'm sure that that's intentional because it just shows up how blasé they were in saying, oh, sure, we're able. You know, are you able to die with him? When it comes to the real choices of giving up things, uh, of paying certain prices for, for following him, are you able? You know, are you really able to literally give your life in pain, in, in, etc.? Physically, literally, uh, not literally, symbolically, whatever. Yeah, let's not sit here and say, yes, we are able, of course, Lord. Uh, and so it is really with, with taking the, the emblems of his death. Whenever I reconstruct in my own mind his death there, there is something that cries out at me at every point of the whole thing, I would not have done this. I would not have done it. I, when I say I could not have done it, but whatever, I would not have done it. And that rather changes the spirit in which we participate in baptism and in the breaking of bread and in his death. That we do so then grateful that he has allowed us to be in him, to be counted as in him, whereby all his achievements, his death, his resurrection, his struggle with every sin and victory over it, where all that is counted to us, that we're counted as if those things have happened. And in that spirit, I suggest, we, we drink of, of, of his cup. Now, of course, he does have in view the memorial meeting, because in 1 Corinthians 10.21, to, to drink the Lord's cup is, is used about partaking in the, the memorial table. But, he says, to uh, give you places at my right hand and my left hand is not for me to give you. Well, there's sort of a glaring point here that, of course, the poor guy who would be at his left hand would be condemned because in, in his parables he makes this point that he's going to divide the sheep from the goats and some will be on the right and some on the left and those on the left hand are those who are going to be condemned. And she, this woman uh, and these men in their... Naivety, come and say, oh, give us the places on the right and on the left. Now, he doesn't say, you foolish people, don't you even get it? And you're not even thinking what you're asking. He just, he just politely says, it's not mine to give, it's from God. And that, by the way, is a fairly, yet another, fairly big nail in the coffin, I would say, of the Trinitarian uh, view of Jesus that if it's not his to give, and it's only God's, then since when is Jesus very God? It's not at all. But he, he says, it shall be given for them, uh, to them for whom it is prepared. And I want to just focus a little bit on this idea of uh, the preparation of the reward in God's kingdom. Because the word is, is used often, several times, about... You know, come into the kingdom prepared for you. 
Matthew 25, 34, from the foundation of the world. Hebrews 11:16. He has prepared for them a city. And that is not simply uh, eternity, that, oh, okay, I'll give you immortality. There is a specific and unique future prepared for each of us in God's kingdom. You get it clearly, John 14, verses 2 and 3. I go to prepare a place for you. He's talking about his death on the cross. But there I shall prepare a place for you. And he likens it to one of the rooms in my father's house. One of the, I would say, one of those little uh, rooms for the priests that were located all around the, the temple, the Father's house. So we're each going to have our unique little room, as it were, in the temple, our unique service in God's uh, future and eternal purpose. So then, what's being prepared for you and me is not simply immortality. It's not simply a, a sort of a physical, if you like, change to your body or my body, whereby I shall not be able to die. What is being prepared for each of us is a specific and unique and wonderful for us, for you, for me, uh, future in God's kingdom. Uh, a specific ministry, if you like, a specific uh, way of being forever. And yet, thinking about this word, the idea of preparation... Uh, I am talking about the specific Greek word that's translated this way. Uh, we're told a number of times that we are being prepared. That God is preparing his people. We're being prepared. And yet this unique place in the kingdom is being prepared for us. What's the connection? The point is that you and I, through all the situations in this life, are being prepared for that for which we shall always be. Our reward is being prepared, you are being prepared, I am being prepared. Because who and how we are eternally is going to be the reward. It's not so much that we're going to be given something, like wrapped up as a present, but rather uh, that who we shall be is the reward, eternal. And that's why we're being prepared now. That is why every single thing that happens in life is preparing us for who we shall eternally be. It may be that you struggle with some particular weakness of the mind or morally, spiritually, physically, uh, in health terms or whatever. Okay, That's being used and worked on by God because what you're going to do eternally is going to be built on that experience that you're having now. The only thing that surprises me about the whole thing is why this life is so short. I would have thought if we're going to be eternally doing all this, uh, I would have thought that we, we would need longer than, you know, the few years that we basically have in this world to cough and hack our way through. I would have thought that you'd have needed to give a guy a few thousand years to prepare him for eternity, but instead the Lord gives us a lot less than that. So that means that there's a, a, a great intensity in how we are living life and, and in, in the meaning and significance attached to absolutely everything. That's a worse thing, to feel that there is no meaning that can be attached to event in life. 
that the whole thing is so insignificant and that this is mere existence. And this, of course, is the, the reason why there's so much depression uh, amongst people, particularly as they get older in, in secular life amongst unbelievers, because there is no significance, there is no meaning to the, the events that, that make up the, uh, the, the, the chain of, of being that goes on, existence that goes on every day, every month, every year, etc. But what is the point? Why am I here? And this, of course, is, is where life in Christ is so different, that there is significance attached to every event. All right, you may not perceive it now. Sure, we don't perceive it. But it's because the preparation process is preparing us for that which we shall eternally be. And as I say, that eternal uh, reward that has been eternally prepared is you. It's who you and I are going to be forever. So, Often I, I think you sense in life that, man, that experience was clearly from God, but why on earth did that happen? Yeah, you don't know why that happened, and maybe you never will. Uh, but you get a, a deep sense that there was some significance to it, and that, that significance shall be revealed eternally. That, ah, oh, so that's why I had to go through all that with that cranky woman next door. So that's why I had to go through... Uh, that aspect of my health problems, etc., I see. And yet also, for example, his wife, the, the lamb's wife, has prepared herself and made herself ready. It's a couple of times at the end of Revelation you, you again meet this word, that we are preparing ourselves, and yet Jesus is preparing us. So then he's not forcing us. He is not forcing us. Uh, he is willing to confirm us in the path in which we choose to take in self-preparation. And <clears throat> in that sense, we are masters of our own eternal destiny. How we develop in this life is who we shall eternally be. And this is why the spirit, and I'm not talking about the soul, <clears throat> but the spirit of man, that is the uh, who you really are, uh, shall be saved, we're told. In that day, who you are as a person, as a spirit, as a personality, that's how I would take the word spirit in this context, as a character, that will be saved in the last day. So then it's not that you're just going to be given a totally new personality. The wonder of Christianity is personal salvation, that you shall be saved, I shall be saved. Well, when the ten heard it, they were pretty annoyed. They were angry. And I think we shared a bit of that anger. That, oh man, how could you, after all that Jesus promised, etc., uh, to die for you and to give you thrones to reign on, uh, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, how could you take him aside quietly and try and manipulate him by misquoting some of his words about if two or three agreed together to ask anything, it should be done for them, and you two or three, you two and your mum, you, you come to Jesus and try and twist his ear uh, quietly and get him to, to give you a special deal. Oh, come on, this is bad. And But, and there's a lot of significance in 25, but Jesus called them to him. What does he do? He tells them about servanthood. So, we then also get terribly wound up by the unspirituality of our brethren and their misunderstandings of scripture 
and so forth. And what's the answer to that? Well, but the Lord calls them, he calls the ten, and says, look, be servants. Take all that anger and all that frustration that you've got against these two brethren, and instead be servants. And he says, watch out, because in the world, they have a spirit of having uh, a hierarchy whereby princes, uh, verse 25, and archon literally means the first, the uh, arche, the, uh, the first ones, and he's just said in the power of the laborers, the first are going to be last. But he says in the world, they have a, a pyramid structure of power, whereby the, uh, the princes, the first ones, exercise dominion. They cater kurio. Kurios is the word for lord. Uh, literally, they lord it over others. Now, why does start, the Lord start talking about this? And then he says, you know, but it mustn't be so amongst you. You've got to be uh, each other's servants and ministers. Well, he says this to the ten. <clears throat> to the ten, he tells this to. And he tells it to them because they're angry with the other two. Because the other two have been so unspiritual, misunderstood scripture, willfully twisted it all around, etc. And the Lord is saying, the Lord is saying, don't be like that. Instead, take that anger and that frustration you feel against those two brethren and serve. Serve them, serve others. Focus upon serving. And do not hold yourself above those two. I think that's his point. Once you start doing that, he's saying, you back into this power structure which there is in the world. This hierarchical, pyramid-style uh, leadership and domination and lording it over others. There's only one lord around here, and that's me, the Lord is saying, uh, and there's a huge implication in him being our only lord and saviour. If he's the only lord, then you are not to lord it over others. Just get on and serve. That's very much what, what he's saying. And he says, <clears throat> those that are great, or megas, the mighty, the strong, the superior... They exercise authority upon others, but it shouldn't be the same amongst you. Now, in this context, it's the ten who are the, the megas, the, the mighty, the strong, the superior, the great, who are tempted to exercise power or control or authority over their inferiors. In this point, the two brothers, James and John, are inferior to the others. They have misbehaved, they have thought wrongly, they have twisted scripture, they have misunderstood it, uh, and they're... Yeah, their motives are wrong. All things wrong, what they did. But, the Lord is saying, so therefore, you're tempted to think that you're great, that you're above them, that you have the advantage over them. And yeah, maybe you do. Maybe uh, you don't misunderstand Scripture as they do, maybe you don't live as they do, so on and so forth. Okay, but, you are not greater. You are not to exercise authority over those who are spiritually inferior to you. Just get on with serving. That's what he's saying. Then he again brings them back to himself. Verse 26, Whosoever will be great amongst you, let him be your minister. Well, you could read this as the Lord saying, well, if you really want to be great and big time in the kingdom, well then get on and be humble. But I'm not sure that that is what he has in view. Whosoever will be great, verse 26, 
that is in the singular. And you can tell that because he goes on by saying, let him, singular, be your minister. He has one person in view. Now who's going to be greatest in the kingdom? Well, it's Jesus, quite clearly. And he's saying, I think, the one who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom, let him be your minister. Let him be your servant. Now, if I'm correct, and he has in mind himself as the one who shall be the greatest in the kingdom, and yet he, of course, was the one who became lower than all of us, as Philippians 2 says, in that he died the death of the cross, you could read him as saying, allow me to be your minister. And this is all very much the basis for him, that the, uh, the feet washing incident, when he washes their feet and they don't want him to do that because it's the work of the lowest slave. And Jesus says, you've got to let me do this or else you're none of them. There's no part of me. Uh, that then would, would sort of explain this, let him be your minister. Peter didn't want to let Jesus be his minister, his servant. So then, again, he's bringing them back to himself and his death on the cross. He's saying, look, you have in all this squabble, but I am going to die for you. Whoever wants to be chief, Protos, the first, this again clearly is, is the Lord Jesus. And he's saying, look, you know, I am who I am amongst you because I suffered so much and because I will uh, suffer so much. And I, I have come, he says, not to be ministered unto, uh, but to minister. My focus then was not on what I could get out of this, but my focus was and is upon simply serving you, loving you, purely for the sake of it. And this is a, a lovely idea. Now, you need to put this verse 28, the Son of Man didn't come to be ministered unto. You need to put that together with what he says in Matthew 25, 44, in the parable, where the people whom he will reject will say, when did we not minister unto you? Same words, and there must be a connection. Jesus says here, the Son of Man did not come to be ministered unto. The rejected say, but when did we not minister unto you? When did we see you hungry, didn't feed you? Of course he says, well, if you didn't serve my brethren, then you didn't do it to me. But putting it all together, I think what he could be saying is, um, he didn't come to be served personally, but rather he comes to us in the form of his needy brethren. And that, given the nature of the internet, given the nature of our awareness of the neediness of our brethren worldwide, uh, that is very clear. That in those encounters that we have with information uh, and, and actual encounters with those in need, he is coming to us and we are to minister unto those people, rather than thinking, well, I'm here just to minister unto Jesus personally. So he says that he came to give his life as a ransom for many, and the, the word lutron there that's translated ransom, it's the only time it's, it's used is in this incident uh, in the New Testament, and <clears throat> it literally means to unloose, an unloosing. And I wonder if that's connected with the whole uh, 
allusion which there is, the connection which there is to the Lord Jesus um, sort of unloosing their sandals and washing their feet. So then they departed from Jericho, verse 29, and they encounter this, uh, these two blind men. Now the critics make a terrible uh, thing about this. They say it's all contradictory that um, in Mark 10, the parallel record 46, it says that um, he met and healed Bartimaeus, the blind Bartimaeus, as he left Jericho. Well, that's not a contradiction. It's just that Mark zoomed in on one of these two, two blind men. So there's no problem with that. Uh, Luke 18 says that he healed a blind man as he approached Jericho. And yes, it's described in very similar language. What's the contradiction for crying out loud? I would say that the critics give more away about themselves by the way they love to say, oh yeah, it's all these things are in contradiction. Well, no, that's because you want them, you want to see the contradiction there. There is no contradiction between these three accounts. So then, you could argue that the the blind man whom he cured as he approached Jericho is described in such similar terms as the the two blind men that are healed now, exactly because they would have taken their inspiration from that blind man, their friend probably, who had been cured on the approach road to Jericho. And so having heard about that, they go and in similar faith uh, go and park themselves on the the exit road from Jericho, knowing that the Lord is going to pass by. And that's, is it not, how it happens, that that faith is passed on by example. Um, That they pick that up from from this man that was cured on the approach into into Jericho. Now, they, they shout out in verse 30, Have mercy on us, O son of David. Now, they are exactly the same words used by two other blind men, back in Matthew 9, verse 27, who were also cured as the Lord departed from a town. Now, I was up in Galilee, and now the Lord is in, in Jericho. Now, as I say, critics love to pick up this and, and say, oh, there you are, see, it's all, it's all mixed up. Well, I don't think it is all mixed up. Not at all. I suggest that if you put it all together, you can see that two blind men up in Galilee, in chapter 9, verse 27, have made a connection between the Son of David showing mercy and curing of blindness. And the Lord had responded to that. And somehow they had... Uh, influenced these uh, blind men, another two blind men, one of whom was Bartimaeus, and another blind man uh, on the approach road to Jericho, who cry out exactly the same. Have mercy on us, son of David. And the Lord cures them every time. So somehow, this community of blind men were in contact with each other. That doesn't surprise me. It's not surprising at all. That would be typical. So many times we've seen the gospel enter a community. It could be, let's say, gypsies. Uh, or I've seen the, the, uh, the gospel enter a deaf community. 
in, uh, of, of subsistence farmers here in, in Latvia, uh, in uh, far eastern Latvia. And somehow the message goes from one debt subsistence farmer to another debt subsistence farmer. And yes, the, the message will use similar terms um, because that's how ideas are communicated and it will have its own uh, specific kind of content and its own particular emphasis because it's for that community. You can see it, let's say, in uh, see the gospel spreading in communities of maybe asylum seekers or people who are of a particular language group or ethnic group who are living in some, some city in, uh, in a foreign country, etc. And so it was with these, I would say, this community of blind men. That this message and understanding of Jesus as son of David, who had mercy on blind people by giving them sight, this spread within the community. So forget the critics and just, uh, just take God's word, uh, the, the Gospels, as it stands. And sure, it, it all adds up beautifully. Now, what is this connection then between the son of David and mercy? Why do they say, have mercy on us, you son of David? Well, the promises to David are described as the sure mercies of David. <clears throat> and they're described as that, and you can see this, the references in my notes, uh, about six times in Psalm 89, 49. The mercies which you promised unto David. And it, when you read of mercies there, it's this Hebrew word kesed, which is, I would say, about the closest you get to the word grace in the, in the Old Testament. Now, when David sins with Bathsheba, in Psalm 51, verse 1, he begs for forgiveness on the basis that God's kesed, God's mercy, would not be withdrawn from him. And he is quoting there from the promises to David, which I've said are called the, the mercies, the grace uh, of David. Um, <clears throat> Because it was promised in 2 Samuel 7.15, part of the, the promises to David, that God's mercy, his kesed, would not depart from David as it departed from Saul. So then he's begging, really, for forgiveness for his sin with Bathsheba on the basis of the grace uh, that was shown him in the promises that were given to David. So those promises are not simply about a temple to be built and so forth. They are about God's grace. Now, these men, these blind men, who, as I say, in Galilee and in Jericho, uh, <clears throat> and twice in Jericho, plead for mercy and grace on the basis that you are the son of David, so have mercy on us. They had understood this. And yet, mercy certainly in the context of the mercy of David, would have a moral dimension. It doesn't just mean do me a favor. Be gracious to me. Forgive me. Now, they were blind, <clears throat> and there was a strong connection made between blindness and sin. They say in John 9, people say, so who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. So even though maybe their blindness was not due to human sin, they would have certainly thought it was. They would have felt themselves to be sinners and in need of mercy. And of course one of them is called uh, Bartimaeus, which means 
son of the unclean. We can be pretty sure his mum didn't call him that, give birth to a little baby child and say, oh yeah, you're the son of the unclean. That's what he was called by people, son of the unclean, Bartimaeus. And so <clears throat> these, uh, these men felt themselves to be sinners, and they cried out for mercy from the son of David, with all the understanding that they had of how God had forgiven David uh, because of his mercies to him. And so they beg for this themselves. And Jesus says, sure, call them here. And he cures them. What do you really want? You're on your sight back, sure. And so <clears throat> these people had some uh, quite amazing, I would say, understanding. This community of blind people, the one uh, at the entrance to Jericho, the two leaving Jericho, one of whom was Bartimaeus, connected up, as I say, as we saw in Matthew 9, with the other two blind men who use exactly the same language uh, up, in, up in, the, in Galilee. This community of blind men had come to understand God's grace, and I, I suggested that that's just as we see it happening in, in life today with, um, say, HIV victims here in Riga, uh, communities of these people uh, gathering together with the same understanding of God's grace, passing the word on to each other. And that is, you know, of course, for, for each of us. And again, he says in verse 32, what do you want? Well, we talked about that earlier, verse 21, when he uses exactly the same term <clears throat> to uh, the mother of Zebedee's children. What do you want? And he really is trying to get them, as he tries to get us, to focus upon what is your dominant desire. What do you really want? Well, he touches their eyes, and their eyes were likely secreting some sort of ritually un unclean kind of emissions. Uh, you know, he could have cured them in any number of ways, he just spoke on the word. But he wanted to identify with human uncleanness. So he touches their eyes. And they then follow him. Um, and Mark 10.52 adds, they followed him in the way. But here in verse th Matthew 20 verse 30, these blind men were sitting by the way. It's the same word. So they were there. They have their eyes opened and then they follow the Lord in the way. And the Greek word that's translated follow means literally, <clears throat> literally to be in the same way with. So then, their way, when he, he says to them, um, <clears throat> go your way, he says to them in, in Mark 10, 52, uh, but they follow him in the way. Their way was his way. Go your way, Jesus says to, uh, to, to these men, Mark 10, 52, and yet they follow him in the way, in his way to the cross. So then we each have our own particular and unique way, but it's got to be his way. And there's a lot of talk these days about journey. So I'm on a journey, and she's on a journey, or whatever. Well, that's sort of axiomatic, but uh, yeah, as life progresses, you're sort of traveling somewhere, um, but the fact that you can feel the sense of progress doesn't mean that you're necessarily going in the right direction, that you can drive a car and, and feel that, uh, yeah, I'm making progress, I'm driving, I'm moving, but the question is where you're moving, and you know, you're going the right way. 
So then, we then should be having our way as his way. Go your way, Mark 10.52, they follow Jesus in the way. And as we saw at the beginning of this section, the way for them and for each of us is ultimately the way to, to death, the way to the crucifixion, the way to Golgotha, and the way to God's kingdom.